Hey y'all, thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. I'm your host, Kay Simone, and welcome back for another episode. In Apollo, I gave y'all three choices, and it was between Wayne Williams, Samuel Little, or Henry Louis Wallace. For whatever fucking reason, y'all have chosen Henry's crazy ass, but baby, I'm here to deliver. June 15th, 1992, Carolyn Love finished her shift at the Bojangles, located on Central Avenue in Charlotte, North Carolina. Before leaving, she asked the manager if she could purchase a roll of quarters uh, so she could go ahead and get her laundry done. Caroline gave him a $10 bill in exchange for the quarters and then leaves, so she begins to walk to her apartment. On her route home, she was spotted by her cousin Robert Ross, who basically told her to hop in the whip so he could drive her home. Robert watched as she made it inside, but what's horrifying, y'all, is that the danger was not on the outside. An uninvited Henry Louis Wallace was waiting for her inside of her apartment. Nineteen days prior, he raped a woman and beat her to death with the rock. The world is fucked up, y'all. Let's talk about it. All right, y'all. So let's go ahead and dive into this episode. I just want to let y'all know that this is going to be a two-parter. All right. So this is part one of the Henry Lewis Wallace case. I know it's been a while, y'all. I've been trying to get my craft together, get my equipment together, been researching the hell out of this case because I talk about it a lot on my TikToks, how Black serial killers, there's not a lot of literary work. There's not a lot of studies done. There are books that just came out this year, I think back in July, about Henry Louis Wallace, all right? And so there are a plethora of inconsistent timelines that I really wanted to work through. Now, I have to let y'all know, this is one of the darkest episodes that I have done so far. And I'm going to be giving details. I'm not really holding anything back. So major trigger warning through and through. And if I do say something that is incorrect, because there were so many inconsistent articles and timelines about the Henry Louis Wallace murders and investigations, I would appreciate it if y'all do go ahead and send me an email so I can make corrections uh, if need be. And again, major trigger warning and let me know how the sound quality is because I have purchased more equipment, so I'm not breathing down y'all's throats, all right? So let's go ahead and dive in and thank y'all for y'all's support and thank you for listening. Between 1990 to 1994, in and around Charlotte, North Carolina, Henry Louis Wallace murdered 11 Black women. Their names are Tashonda Bethay, Sharon Nance, Courtney Love, Shauna Hawk, Audrey Ann Spain, Valencia Jumper, Michelle Stinson, Vanessa Littlemack, Betty Jean Buchum, Brandy June Henderson, and Deborah Slaughter. Now, these murders, y'all, that really had the authority stumped because Henry did not fit the FBI profile of a serial killer back then, and the victims were Black, and Henry killed women that he knew, leaving no signs of forced entry or prints behind. Now, previous detectives assigned to the Taco Bell Strangler case said that the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department put less emphasis on cases with African-American victims. 
While we know that the police ain't worth a goddamn, I would be remiss to not mention that the CMPD were not only understaffed, but the year 1993 was the deadliest year in Charlotte. So we had 129 murders to investigate. And again, police were short-staffed and overworked. Call it facets of the truth or a dichotomy of fucking bullshit. Either way, these cases went cold until Henry was caught and he began confessing. So a little bit about Henry Lewis Wallace's background. Uh, Henry was born to Lottie Mae Wallace on November 4th, 1965 in Barnwell, South Carolina. What we know of his father is not much. Uh, we know that he worked as a teacher and his relationship with Lottie was an affair that lasted three years that bore three children, two of which were Yvonne and Henry. This man was 20 years older than Lottie and forced her to keep their relationship a secret and would threaten to leave if she did not. Now, after Henry was born, this man quits his fucking job and he bounces. He gets the fuck on. And before I continue, it is important to say that Lottie's childhood was not the best, y'all. Her mother died while she was young. So she was like 13 years old and her father abandoned them. So for this to circle back around must not have been easy for Lottie. Lottie resented Henry and blamed her son for his father abandoning them, like to put all that pressure on a goddamn child. Come on, Lottie. And Yvonne, so basically the children, they were all living in this dysfunctional and toxic fuckery of a household. And uh, there was no emotional comfort from Lottie. And it is said that Lottie wanted to control Henry through violence, emotional abuse, and other forms of trauma and this lasted well into his adult years. So for work, Lottie was working as a textile worker, and that money simply was not enough. At one point, Henry lived with his older sister, Yvonne, their mother, Lottie, and his great-great-grandmother in a house that had no plumbing or electricity. I was telling my brother about this case, and I was basically saying, like, yeah, they were living in fucking squalor, like poverty. And Sammy was talking about how that really should be studied more, the pipeline from poverty to serial killing. So basically Lottie and her grandmother, they were bumping heads off. And so if she wasn't arguing with her uh, great-grandmother, then she was, oh, I'm sorry, I said great-grandmother. If she wasn't arguing with her grandmother, then she was just bumping heads and abusing the kids. So it is said that Henry's hatred for women started with his mother and the way she humiliated and controlled him. An example of that is when Henry outgrew his clothing, he was given Yvonne's older clothing to wear, and some reports say that this wasn't because of poverty, but for pure humiliation. And when Lottie felt as if Henry and Yvonne needed discipline, she would make them go pick a switch. Now, when I first read this, I was like, wait a damn minute. Like, I was spanked as a child, and because of that, I do not spank as an adult. But I know, you know, having to go pick a switch... I'm not going to say it ain't that bad, but shit, it's not that fucking tough. Now, the thing about it is, is that when Lottie was too tired, she would make them go pick this switch and then make Henry and Yvonne whip each other with the switch. And this was due to her working long hours. Like she was exhausted, so she would have them discipline each other. And there was no love from Lottie. And despite this, Henry continued to try to win her love to no avail. Lottie rejected Henry at every turn. So this type of discipline, mentally, physically, and emotionally, it really fucked Henry up. Introduction to sex was horrific and also did him no favors. 
Henry was molested by an older girl in his neighborhood at the age of four years old. When he was eight years old, he witnessed a 16-year-old girl get taken to the woods by several high school boys, and that is where she was then gang-raped. Henry was not repulsed by this. Henry didn't report what he saw. Henry said that it turned him on. Dr. Gary Brucato, he's a clinical psychologist, and he spoke in the documentary Bad Henry. I believe it's episode seven or eight of First Blood, which can be found on A&E. Dr. Brucato said, and I quote, it's impossible to believe that this particular experience didn't leave a mark in terms of the fantasies he would go on to develop about domination and violence towards women over time, end quote. At the age of 16, Henry was popular. He was a very popular kid in high school, despite, you know, having been assaulted by a younger gal in the neighborhood and despite his comings into violent thoughts about women, he was really able to play it off. So he was very popular in high school. He was getting amazing grades and he served on the student council and was the only male on the cheerleading squad. A couple of reports that I read y'all said that he went with the cheerleading squad because Lottie wouldn't let him play football. So I bet you Lottie's old sick ass thought that Henry would be embarrassed to become a cheerleader, but really he flourished at it. And so by all accounts, Henry was a likable teen. And an old classmate of Henry's, her name is Wida Swandest, uh, she didn't know about the poverty that Henry and Yvonne were enduring back at the crib. Wida actually wondered how Henry could remain so positive. And Henry didn't appear to have a bad bone in his body. Again, by all accounts, he was comfortable to be around. So it's now said that he basically mirrored what he saw everyone else doing so he could fit in. That's fucking scary. And he did this because he knew that he was different. Henry, at this point, he had begun to collect violent porn magazines. But over time, that just wasn't enough. Still, he's 16 years old, y'all. And he tries to rape the younger sister of one of his friends. And one day he spots this girl. She's walking to school. He asks her if she wanted a ride. Instead of taking her to school, he took her to a wooded area and asked this child if she wanted to have sex. According to Henry, she rejected his advances and his mind flashed back to the violent porn that he had been uh, digesting. Despite her saying no, Henry tried to rape her but failed. Henry said, and I quote, I wanted to have someone in my total submission to be totally in control of that person and I felt like that was the way, end quote. Well, no, fucking monster, that is not the fucking way. Like, so Henry, he graduates from high school in 1983, and he attended one semester at South Carolina State College between August and December of 1983. Then he enrolled at Denmark Technical College and was a student there for 10 months. For work, he was a disc jockey part-time for the WBAW and dubbed himself the Night Rider. By all accounts, Henry was damn good at what he did, y'all, and he could have made a career out of hosting his own radio station. Henry was talented, and they said that he had the voice for it. Uh, the ladies, they said that his voice was smooth like goddamn chocolate, all right, but the face didn't fit the damn voice. Now, this, kinds of, this kind of reminds me of when Ted Bundy was being sentenced. For those of you who don't know, Ted represented himself during the... Um, 
his trial in 1979 for the Kyle murders. Yeah. And the judge told him that he would have been a good ass lawyer and that he would have loved to see him practice in front of him. Henry could have made some good coin doing what the fuck he loved, but his time at the radio station was short-lived because he was caught stealing CDs and the owner of the station, Drew Wilder, was forced to terminate Henry from his position. So here we are, college isn't working out. He had just lost his damn job. So what do niggas do when all else fails? They joined the motherfucking Navy. So let's go ahead and get into this colossal fucking mess. So Henry joined the U.S. Navy December of 1984 and served until his discharge in 1989. One year after joining the Navy, he married his high school sweetheart, Moretta Brabham, and Moretta had a daughter named Tiandra from a previous relationship. So this gave Henry a sense of purpose because he wanted uh, to be nothing like his father. While in the U.S. Navy, by all accounts, Henry did as he was told, and once again, it looked like he was going to have a promising career. Not long after marrying Moretta, Henry began to suffer the illness of drug addiction, and his poison was crack cocaine. Over time, he didn't quite have the money to pay for the drug, so what do you do? You get to steal it. And Henry was going around burglarizing homes and businesses to support his addiction, and eventually got caught while well, he was stationed in Seattle, Washington. During his, uh, this time in Washington, Henry actually rapes a woman. This time he is successful. So this account is according to Henry, and he says that there was a woman who had locked herself in a hotel room, and basically she was holding on to these rings that belonged to another service member. From the looks of it, this woman, she was a sex worker, and she... Um, did services for a man and he did not pay her and he basically tried to boogie the fuck out of dodge but left his wedding bands in the motel so she was holding on to the rings and at this point the service member he thought that he was going to go ahead and get his friends and they were going to harass this woman at her door until she gave up these rings but Everybody was unsuccessful getting in until Henry popped up because, again, Henry at this point was having sex with sex workers uh, on a consistent basis. So she trusted Henry and let him inside thinking that he would make the situation right and that she was going to get her payment. But instead, Henry takes the rings and tell, tells her to get undressed. He covered her mouth with his hand and he violently raped this woman. And at this point, he believed that there was good Henry and bad Henry. In my notes, I just put, you're a fucking asshole, you're disgusting. Like this woman trusted Henry to make sure that she got her fucking payment for her services and he rapes her. So moving on, uh, now by January of 1988, he already had warrants for crimes he had committed in the Seattle metro area and was arrested for breaking into a hardware store. Now, after pleading guilty to second-degree burglary, he was sentenced to two years of supervised probation. Henry had to attend mandatory meetings, and his probation officer said he barely did that, and eventually he was discharged from the U.S. Navy after he was caught stealing from the base. Mind you, they knew the, the fuckery that he had going on, but yeah, don't fuck around and steal from the goddamn government, I suppose. 
After his dismissal, Moretta packs up her bags and her daughter and gets the fuck on. And I want to get the story correct because I do not like the way that this woman was portrayed in some of the telling of the cases. So I first heard that Henry came home to a distant wife who was mad as hell that he had been discharged. Of course, the family was still receiving benefits, but it said that Moretta didn't like the idea of uh, him being home all the time and that it was the fuckery that he was doing back over in Seattle that had gotten him discharged that she didn't like as well. And she's well within her right to feel away. You're addicted to crack cocaine, burglarizing homes and businesses, and now you've been discharged. So ultimately, it, so ultimately it was said that Moretta didn't want to have sex with Henry because she still had trauma over being raped as a teenager. So she leaves Henry um, because she didn't want to have another child. And this was despite Henry's pleas for her to go to therapy. She says she didn't want to deal with the shit and split. But the real story is that Henry comes home and he begins to initiate violent sex with Moretta, knowing that she was raped as a teenager. And Moretta told him that she did not like the style of sex and that it was triggering for her. Henry wanted her to seek therapy to heal the trauma that she had endured. Mind y'all, while he's begging her to go to therapy, he's triggering her by putting her in these situations where it feels as if he's raping her. And Henry did want to tr uh, try to try for a child, but Moretta ended the sexual aspect of the relationship because he wouldn't stop trying to hurt her during sex, as she should have. So Moretta leaves him, and this pissed Henry the fuck off. From here, when Henry raped women, he visualized Moretta. So shit already hit the fan back in Seattle, Washington, y'all, but it is straight downhill from here. So Henry and Moretta, they officially separated in 1992, but Henry was dating well before then. So March of 1990, 25-year-old Henry was trying to groom an 18-year-old named Tashonda Bethay, and this was back in his hometown, Barnwell, South Carolina. It is said that Tashonda met him between 1989 and 1990, and according to Henry, they had a non-spoken agreement that they went together. Henry gives off that energy, like, you tell a nigga you about to hop in the shower and he say, without me, like, that's the disgusting energy Henry gives off. And Henry claims that their relationship was primarily kissing and touching, but she would always stop him before he got any further. Like, honestly, fuck him. Like, that girl did not want Henry, and he didn't like the rejection because, you know what, those who knew Tashonda, they said that she wasn't interested in Henry and would reject his advances, but trusted him because their families knew each other. Henry's mother, Lottie, and Tashonda's mother worked together at the same factory, and they were good friends. This 18-year-old baby was a senior in high school with a bright future, and Tashonda having boundaries that is really what pissed him off. So again, as I stated, this is about to go downhill very fast, y'all. So major, major trigger warning. So March 18th of 1990, Henry sees her walking alone. And he recalled in his confession that this infuriated him. And she was walking to a baseball game and Henry remained composed and convinced her to get in the car with him. Instead of dropping her off at the game, he immediately drove her out to the city limits and turned off the road into a wooded area. Like, this is incredibly sad because she trusted him. 
Henry gets out of the car and goes to the trunk and pulled out a .357 handgun. Then he ordered Tashanda to get out of the car. After she exited the vehicle, Henry made her undress and raped her on the hood of his vehicle. While raping Tashanda, he strangled her, but this didn't kill her. Neither did his attempt to strangle her in his back seat. Now, after this horrific assault, Henry tells her to put her clothes back on. The moment that she bent down to put on her underwear, he places her in this chokehold until she passes out. Once Tashanda was incapacitated, he placed her in the um, in the back part of his car, I believe it was in the back seat, and drove further outside the city limits to Anderson's Pond. Henry then took out a utility knife, and he cut her throat and her wrists before throwing Tashanda into the pond. This baby was still gasping for air, y'all, and he could hear the bubbles popping on the pond. After all of that, Tashanda Bethay drowned. Tashanda's family filed a missing persons report with the Barnwell County Sheriff's Office uh, when she didn't come back home. And I'm talking this was that same night that she was supposed to go to that game. So several weeks would pass before Tashanda was discovered. On the 1st of April, two fishermen were at Anderson's Pond when they found her remains, and Henry did become the top suspect. He was arrested on April 2nd, but it wasn't in connection to Tashanda's disappearance. Henry had raped Tashanda Bethay's friend at gunpoint on March 31st in Allendale, South Carolina. Her name was Eartha Brown, and she's 16 years old at the time, and a sophomore at Barnwell High School. And I'm sorry, I said her name was Eartha Brown. Her name is Eartha Brown. I do believe she's still living. And Henry, like this sick fuck, mind y'all, he is a child rapist and a predator. And this baby, she barely got out of the situation alive, y'all. So Henry and Eartha, they were on a date and had already visited two nightclubs in the area before Henry drove them to a motel. Soon as they make it into her room, Henry knocked her onto the bed and tried to remove her clothing, but she began to put up a fight. He then pulled out a gun and held it to her temple and told her that they had to make love. Like, disgusting. And she, Eartha, Eartha did not stop screaming, and she fought him off, and eventually he stopped fighting her and then took her home. Way to fucking go, Eartha, all right? She fought him to the point of where he gave up. Like, Henry, fuck you. So Henry would spend about eight days in jail because Eartha's mother, uh, she, ended up bite, she ended up biting back and told the authorities that she wanted his ass to go to jail uh, for what he did to Eartha. So he spent about eight days there, but was ultimately released on bond. And while he was detained, he was questioned about the rape and murder of Tashanda Bethay. Sheriff Zorn, he worked in Barnwell at the time and said that there wasn't enough evidence to hold him. Ed Carroll, who was another former sheriff, said that they suspected that he was guilty. Forensics tested Henry's car for evidence, but never found anything to connect him at the time, and Henry was charged with second-degree sexual assault for the attack of Earth Brown. Now, that should have gotten Henry 20 years easy, but instead... Henry was allowed to enter a pre-trial intervention program, which was designed for nonviolent first-time offenders. Holding a gun to a child's temple while trying to rape her seems fucking violent to me. And another warrant was issued for his arrest because he ended up skipping out on that PTI program, and Henry would not get arrested again until 1994. So back it up. So February of 1991. 
Henry breaks into his old high school and the radio station where he used to work. I think it was called the WBAW. And I'm talking about the one that he was fired from. And he was later caught trying to pawn off the items he stole, which were video and recording equipment. Authorities could have arrested him if they had done their goddamn jobs correctly. That failure to appear warrant due to him skipping out on the PTI program was issued January 28th of 1991. So I looked it up myself and it's literally right there. He had a warrant for his arrest and the police just said, well, and, and let him fucking go. So Henry ended up moving around, but no matter where this man went, accusations of rape followed him. And for a time, he lived in Rock Hill, South Carolina with his sister, Yvonne, and that didn't work well. So Henry packed up and moved to Charlotte, North Carolina with his mother. One thing about Henry, he could not keep a steady job. So he bounced around to a lot of different fast food joints. And eventually he gets a gig of working as a manager at his local Taco Bell. And... I'm sure, I think I mentioned it earlier, they ended up dubbing this case the Taco Bell Strangler case because he was a manager at a Taco Bell while he did the majority of his crimes. May of 1992 is when he kills again. May 27th, road workers in Charlotte were mowing the grass on the sides of Roselle's Ferry Road. Now, y'all, this is um, this road is uh, six or seven miles from the center of the city, and a lot of trucks were known to pass through this route because it's an industrial area. The workers, they're mowing the grass, and that is when they find human remains. Authorities arrived at the scene, and then this is when they perform a grid search, which is basically them scouting the area around the point where the remains were found for more evidence. The entries to the remains were so clear uh, that they could immediately tell that a violent homicide had occurred. These remains were transported to the medical examiner's office, and an autopsy revealed that the victim had to have been involved in a fight, and the cause of death was blood force trauma. So dental records showed that the remains belonged to 32-year-old Sharon Nance, and her family would see that she had been murdered on television first, and that just hurt so bad. And according to multiple reports, Sharon was working as a sex worker to provide for her family. They said everything she did was for her son, and through it all, she was incredibly vibrant and caring. Sharon's aunt said that whenever she could do something for somebody, she would do it no hesitation. And when those dental records popped for Sharon, everyone was just absolutely devastated. So a week before her disappearance, Sharon, Sharon was last seen wearing a black dress and the family knew that she was headed out to go dancing. When she didn't return calls, they knew that something was awry. And the night that she went out, Sharon was picked, by, picked up by none other than Henry. And according to him, they had consensual sex. And when Sharon demanded payment for her services, Henry beat her to death with a rock. Sharon being a sex worker made her case harder to solve. And this was because other sex workers weren't trying to deal with the police. We already know that if he participated in sex work, if he suffered from the illness of drug addiction, the police, they like to pin additional charges when really they should be investigating what the fuck you'd have walked into the precinct for. So these women, they were not very forthcoming with information because they didn't want to deal with their shit. So what ended up happening is that Sharon Nance's case went cold quick, y'all. And I'm going to just tell y'all now, Henry confesses to this murder 
after he's caught, right? But Sharon Nance and her family, they never got the justice that they deserved. I had mentioned that many of the women knew Henry. So because Sharon did not, authorities never convicted Henry of Sharon's murder. But we know that this nigga did it. So now I'm going to go ahead and cover some of the women who are heavily associated with this case. It's just so important that we talk about the women that are often not included in the timeline of the murders. And so the start of this timeline, y'all, it's going to begin with Henry dating a woman named Sadie McKnight. Some reports do say that Henry was living with Sadie when he murdered her roommate, Carolyn Love. Now, to me, if that, if that was true, then why did he have to sneak and make a copy of the key when Sadie wasn't paying attention? So now let's go ahead and get into it. So y'all, again, I think I said this before, but it's going to get downhill. Like as if we're not already in the pit of fucking hell. It does not get better until part two, y'all. Uh, so major trigger warning, and I will be dropping other trigger warnings as we progress in that episode. So 19 days after Sharon's body was discovered, Carolyn Love was reported missing to the authorities. Carolyn was 20 years old and she was studying nursing at Central Piedmont Community College. And by all accounts, she was dependable and vibrant. When she stopped showing up for her shifts at the Bojangles, red flags instantly went up because it was not like her to not come to work on time, let alone not show up at all without any communication. In the intro, I mentioned how Carolyn clocked out after her shift on the 15th of June, and before leaving, she exchanged cash for change so she could get her laundry done. Carolyn was walking uh, to and from her job often because it was so close, and this time, her cousin spotted her and gave her a lift. The next day, a manager from Bojangles contacted her sister, Kathy, and basically Kathy goes to Carolyn's apartment and leaves a note for her, like, hey, call me because we're looking for you. We just want to make sure you're okay. The next day, Bojangles calls again to inform Kathy that Carolyn had not shown up for her shift. So now it's been three days in a row, y'all. Kathy then calls Henry because he was dating Sadie McKnight, who was also Carolyn's roommate. Henry calls Sadie, and then they go to the police with Kathy to file a missing person report. Like, Henry, you ain't worth a goddamn. And y'all will see later on uh, as we progress through the episode how he attends funerals, he helps file police reports, and he helps look for these women like he didn't rape and murder them. So let's just continue. So after filing the missing persons report, Kathy went back to her sister's apartment with the police to look around. And this is when she noticed that some of the furniture had been moved and the sheets from Carolyn's bed were missing. What we know now is that earlier that day, um, Henry had taken the key off the wall without anyone noticing and made a copy of it. So on the day that Carolyn was last seen. In his confession, he said that he was just waiting for Sadie and was surprised when Carolyn came home. But I call bullshit. Henry also admitted that he had fantasized about raping Caroline and was obsessed with her. After being dropped off by Robert, Carolyn unlocks the door to her apartment and does her little routine, like putting her purse up and getting comfortable. Then she sits on the couch and turns on the TV. This is when Henry calls to her from the bathroom and says that he would leave as soon as he came out. So it's not that Caroline heard him 
in the bathroom. Like I'm telling y'all, she had put her purse up. Uh, she had done her routine, you know, you know, coming into the house, had sat down. She hadn't heard Henry in the apartment at all. He called out to her to warn her of his presence. So Caroline probably didn't think anything of him being there because for all she knew, Sadie might've actually given him a key or let him borrow hers. Henry comes out of the bathroom and instead of leaving, he goes by Caroline who's sitting on the couch and he kisses her on the cheek. Carolyn is freaked out at this point and promises that she won't tell Sadie as long as he doesn't try to do that fuck shit again. And this is when Henry placed her in a wrestling-like chokehold, and that's when they begin to scuffle, y'all, so trigger warning. Carolyn manages to scratch his arms and his face, but eventually passes out, and this is where it gets bad. Henry takes Carolyn to the bedroom and tied her hands behind her back with the cord from a curling iron and placed tape over her mouth. Now, during the time that she was in and out of consciousness, Henry raped Caroline orally and vaginally while continuously choking her to stop her from regaining consciousness. So after this horrific ordeal, Carolyn was still alive, so Henry then strangled her to death. Henry then moved his car closer to the stairwell of the apartment and returned with a large orange plastic bag. After wrapping Caroline's body in a sheet from the bed, he had placed her in the trap. He placed her in the trash bag, y'all, excuse me. Uh, then he put clothes into another bag to make it look like Caroline had left. On his way out of Caroline and Sadie's apartment, he took the roll of quarters with him. Like, you broke bitch. So now he had to find a place to bring Caroline's body. So he drove down Statesville Road until he found a wooded area. And then he placed the bag where he thought no one would notice it, y'all. But the next day... He actually goes back into the woods because he thought that the orange was too bright and would be easily spotted. So yeah, just to make sure I said all of that clearly, um, yeah, he pulls his car up to the stairwell, he places her into a bag and then places clothes in another bag, um, probably to make it look as if she was leaving to go finish her laundry because uh, they did have conversation before he attacked her. And so he ends up going back to the wooded place that he put the orange bag because he thought it was too bright. So Henry does find Carolyn's body very quickly and he removes her from the orange bag and then he places her in a shallow ravine. Henry said her body looked like a leather E.T. doll and provided descriptions of how decayed Carolyn looked. What's fucked up, y'all, is that Sadie then moved in with Henry and unfortunately, Robert, y'all know that Robert was the last person to see her alive, her cousin, the one who picked her up as he saw her walking home from the Bojangles. And again, he was the last person to see her alive. For some reason, he failed three polygraph tests and didn't show up for her funeral. Now, all of these weird situations really make him look guilty, but we know that polygraph tests it's very easy to fail those and you know we can't really clock grieving so robert's car was searched and nothing could be found linking him to carolyn's murder but her body laid in that ravine until henry's confession in 1994 and the only thing the authorities really noticed was that the roll of quarters was missing from her apartment along with some disruptive furniture and the missing bed sheets 
Courtney was the third woman to go missing in 1992. And the next month, the authorities reached out to the communities for help in trying to locate the missing women. But we know that Caroline's case went cold, y'all. So after Henry's brutal attack on Carolyn Love, he moved on to Shauna Hawk. During this time, Shauna was living in a two-story apartment on Elon Avenue in Charlotte with her mother, Dee Sumter. Shauna, they said that Shauna loved children and her favorite color was purple. By all accounts, she was ambitious and she was studying to become a paralegal at Central Piedmont Community College. So it looks as if her and Caroline were going to the same college. So Shauna knew Henry because he was her manager at the Taco Bell on Sharon Amity Road. And over time, they became good friends and even dated for a period of time. February 19th of 1993, Shauna's mother comes home to put dinner on and notices that Shauna's car is not there. And, but her coat and her purse were in the closet. And one thing that Shauna never missed was picking up her godson from daycare. So once Dee realized that Shauna hadn't picked the baby up, she immediately clocked that something was wrong. And around 5 p.m., she called Shauna's boyfriend, Daryl Kirkpatrick, to ask if he had heard from her. So Daryl reassured Dee that everything was okay, that he had spoken to her earlier. Three hours later, Dee was still frantic and she was convinced that something was awry. So Daryl, this time, he hears that uh, panic in her voice and he drives over to the house. So they did try to call the police to file a missing persons report, but were turned down because it hadn't been 24 hours yet. And the apartment wasn't in disarray, but they're going through the apartment, y'all, and they're trying to, you know, figure out, like, did she leave anything behind? There's a phone here. What's going on? But remember that this is a two-story apartment. So as Daryl is coming through the apartment looking for clues, he notices that the carpet was soaked by the downstairs bathroom. He walks in and through the shower curtain, he could see something in the bathtub. Y'all, it was Shauna and she was curled up in a fetal position and fully submerged underwater. Immediately, they contacted the authorities and the authorities observed her in the tub and, and she was fully clothed, lying on her right side. CPR was performed, but Shauna was already gone, y'all. And so this is what happened. Henry had stopped by Shauna's house to visit her. They chatted for about an hour, and Shauna began to tease Henry about an argument he recently had with Sadie. This teasing really set him off because he was already feeling a way towards Shauna because she had found out that Henry stepped out on Sadie and had a child with another woman. Mm. Like, what is this? tea. That's what it is. It's it's tea. So he had stepped out on Sadie and had a child with another woman. And Shauna sometimes teased Henry in front of her mother uh, as well. And that also embarrassed him. And remember, I told y'all he does not do well with embarrassment. Very self-conscious. He's a fucking monster. So all these different things sent him into a rage. And he raped Shauna orally and vaginally. During his confession, y'all, this is very sad, he said that she never stopped crying. And even prior to the rape, Shauna knew what was about to happen to her. Henry described his, his rage as like a switch flipping. After raping Shauna, 
she started praying while she was getting dressed and this infuriated and scared Henry even more. So he walked her to the bathroom where he placed a chokehold on her until she passed out. Henry then filled the tub with water and placed Shauna in it, stole $50 from her purse. Then he left in Shauna's car, which would later be found parked at Central Piedmont College. The next day, Shauna's autopsy was performed by Dr. James M. Sullivan. Shauna's uh, cause of death was actually ligature strangulation, so she was dead before she went into the water. Also noted was that her skull had lacerations and bruising, so Henry must have hit her in the head with a blunt object, which would have caused Shauna to go unconscious prior to being strangled. So family, friends, and the authorities, they quickly turned to Daryl as a potential suspect. And Daryl was the last person to see Shauna alive. And Dee Sumter said, you always suspect the person closest to the victim. And you're not wrong, Mama Dee. Um, but this time they, they did get it wrong. Now, Dee Sumter said, again, yeah, you always suspect the person closest to the victim. And so no one suspected Henry, though, who was perceived as sweet and caring. Henry was perceived as sweet and caring, y'all. Henry went on to attend Shauna's funeral, and people remember him sitting alone with a very strange, vacant expression on his face. Daryl, on the other hand, was in fucking shambles, but everyone thought that Henry was grieving. Now, Daryl is quoted saying, it was a very unsettling time for me. I loved Shauna, end quote. Like, I can't fucking imagine. Uh, same thing goes for Robert. Like, I bet you, like, the stress from being accused and interrogated for something that you know that you didn't do, that might cause somebody's heart to race while they're taking a polygraph test. If I was Robert when it came to Carolyn Love, I would have failed that shit too. But it's just really sad that nobody ever looked at Henry. So the CMPD, they found nothing in their apartment. And of course, Daryl was in fact innocent. So he was eventually removed as a suspect. And it took them a year to connect Shauna's case to the other murders. The impact of Shauna's death for Dee was astronomical, y'all. She said, and I quote, I didn't try to live one day at a time. It was more like one minute at a time. If I made it from 2 p.m. to 2.05 p.m., that would be an achievement. I spent the days that way because Shauna's murder was so overwhelming. I don't know how I made it through that period, end quote. Dee Sumter actually had to go to therapy, y'all, to cope. And as far as the investigation, what the authorities knew was that Shauna must have let her killer inside the apartment, and the killer also drove her car to her college's campus. Eight weeks after her murder, her car was actually found, but the seat was all the way back and reclined, but Shauna was only five feet, two inches. So one year after Shauna Hawk's murder, Dee penned a public letter to her killer and appealed to the public looking for answers because Shauna's case had gone cold. And as a mother, yeah, yeah, because what, what can you do? So I'm going to get this shit done my fucking self, and I'm going to try to reach out to him. So the letter said, and I quote, Dear Killer, I am the mother of Shauna Denise Hawk. I am writing to you because you murdered my only daughter in our home on February 19th, 1993, between the hours of 1 p.m. and 5 p.m. 
It is so hard to believe that an entire year has gone by since that horrible Friday evening when Shauna's dead body was discovered in the bathtub where you put her. I do not hate you. What purpose would that serve? I do want you to come forth and confess to the horrible atrocity you have committed, end quote, signed D. Sumter. Just chills. Powerful. You go, mama. So in the year leading up to that letter, y'all, Henry raped and murdered Audrey Spain, Valencia Jumper, and Michelle Stinson. And the day after the letter was published, Henry raped and murdered Vanessa Little Mac. And before ending part one, I want to tell y'all about Valencia Jumper because there was a major fuck up on the coroner's end and I feel like y'all should know about it. So Valencia was a 21-year-old college student and she was studying political science. She was a senior at Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte and she was working two jobs. And Valencia worked at Food Lion located on Central Avenue and at Hikes, which was in South Park Mall. Henry said later that Valencia was like a little sister to him and they spent time often, but it's unclear exactly on how they met y'all. And I also want to point out like all these different conversations about women who are vulnerable to, you know, the worst of our kind, the worst of black men, black serial killers. It, how can I put this? I don't know if y'all are on social media a lot, right? Uh, there was a woman, she was hit in the head with a brick by a man, by a black man. And it like the scandal that erupted from this woman being attacked by this man, they started calling it brick gate. And the things that men had to say were horrible. And these pick-me-ass bitches were coming out the woodwork, talking about there's a difference between diamonds versus dirt and rock. I want to point out, y'all could be the best type of Black women. Like, y'all could have college degrees. Y'all could be going to college. Y'all could be working two fucking jobs. If somebody got their eye on you and you are in danger, then baby, that is it's that is why as women we all have to stick together right that is why as women we need to stop saying and doing shit for the male gaze all right because the worst of men they do not give a fuck i'm just pointing that out because these women work in multiple jobs uh doing what the fuck they were supposed to be doing for their children college education and they were still killed by a black man who they knew mind you. So I just wanted to add that in there. So again, uh, Henry said that Valencia was like a little sister to him, unclear of exactly how they met. On August 9th, Valencia and her friend Zachary Douglas, they had made plans to hang out later that night. Zachary made his way to her apartment in the early morning hours of August 10th, and once he arrived, he noticed smoke coming out of her apartment and her door was unlocked. Zachary couldn't see anything inside of her unit because the smoke was too thick. So he alerted neighbors who then called 911. The first firefighter to, the first firefighter to make an entry was Dennis Arney, and he discovered that the burner on the stove had been left on. It was later discovered during the fire investigation that the fire had traveled from the kitchen because a pot was left to burn on the stove. Valencia's body was found in her bedroom and she was burned beyond recognition, y'all. 
So Henry had stopped by Valencia's apartment and they chatted for a bit and he left, but came back to ask her uh, to call Sadie for him because they had gotten into a big fight. Henry attacked her while she was reaching for her phone and he put her in a chokehold. Valencia begged for her life and told Henry that she would do whatever he wanted if he didn't hurt her. After raping Valencia orally and vaginally, he waited until she was getting dressed and attacked her again. Henry put a towel around her neck and choked her until she passed out. And at one point he saw blood coming from her nose. So he continued the pressure for about five minutes until she had no pulse. After killing Valencia, Henry goes around her apartment, you know, wiping down surfaces to make sure that he didn't leave his prints behind. And this is when he sees a bottle of rum. He poured it all over Valencia, the bed, and the surrounding areas. And after pouring out the rum everywhere, this man goes to the kitchen and puts an empty can of beans into a pot. And then he turned the stove on high. So he took he goes on to take the battery out of the smoke detector and then tossed a lit match onto Valencia's body and stole her jewelry on the way out like you low down dirty ass bitch. And Henry, he actually circles back to her apartment after 20 minutes to make sure that the apartment was on fire. Once he saw smoke coming from underneath her door, he went home. He took the jewelry he stole from her to a local pawn shop and pawned it, y'all. Link. Mm. If you don't know it, this man, he is currently serving multiple uh, death sentences, all right? So I'm just adding that in here. After Valencia's body is discovered by firefighters, she was taken to the medical examiner and Dr. Sullivan performed her autopsy. There was no soot in her lungs and no carbon monoxide in her blood, but Dr. Sullivan determined the cause of death was thermal burns. Now, the presence of soot in the lungs suggests that the deceased was breathing and alive during a fire, so there being no soot in her lungs meant that she was, in fact, not breathing. Y'all, now, listen, I'm not, I ain't got the same degrees as Dr. Sullivan, but I can fucking read, and I read an entire article on the forensic pathology of thermal burns. Soot in the lungs of fire victims usually correlates with an elevated carbon monoxide level in the blood. Again, no soot, no carbon monoxide, but her cause of death was thermal burns. Dr. Sullivan wouldn't find out until Henry's confession that he had fucked up. He had fucked up real bad, y'all. So when Henry confessed to the rape and murder of Valencia Jumper, the cause of death was officially changed to strangulation. But at the time of her death, because of this massive fucking mistake that was made during Valencia's autopsy, there was no police investigation, y'all. They treated her death as if it was an isolated incident. Therefore, no one knew that her smoke detector was removed prior to her death, and no one noticed that rum was poured over her entire body. Now, when Dr. Sullivan was notified of this error that effectively turned a murder into an accidental death, this motherfucker said, and I quote, it was just a bad judgment call, end quote. Dr. Sullivan still practices in North Carolina today. And this is where I'm going to end part one. In part two, I will cover the investigation leading to Henry's arrest and trial. So y'all will hear about Vanessa Mack, Betty Buchum, and Brandy June Henderson. I want to let y'all know y'all are the fucking bee's knees for showing up and out with me the way y'all do. And I love y'all to death. Also, I will be uh, covering requested personal topics on the pod as well. So look out for that.
And if you tuned in and you are rocking with me, you can show your support by giving me a five star and a review on Apple and Spotify. If you want to send me an email, please reach out to blackgirltruecrimepodcast at gmail.com. My TikTok is ksimo93. My Instagram is blackgirl underscore truecrimepodcast. And I want to thank y'all for tuning in and I will catch y'all next Wednesday.